Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powers, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again today by my colleagues Emily Riera and Essie Marabara. Um, no special guests today, it's just boring old us. Thank you. How are you guys going? Are you, are you content today? Happy? Ecstatic? Content. Content. Essie's <laughs> ecstatic. That's great. <laughs> All right. Um, today's episode, well, two episodes we're going to do. The important one is contracts of employment. Why do we do them? What should they have? Etc. Etc. And I think it's really interesting. So we're going to talk a little bit today about why contracts of employment are important. And then we're going to talk about the express terms. And when I say express terms, I mean the terms that are actually written down in the contract. Um, and the next episode, we're going to talk about uh, some a little bit more nuanced issues, and that's the issue of implied terms in the contract and also the issue of incorporation of terms. But all today, by the way, specific to employment contracts. We should have a newsletter coming out that kind of correlates to that as well for anyone that, that prefers to see the content in writing. But I think the, the big question, why do we have written employment contracts? What's the point? Just from a practical standpoint, so that both parties know what they're agreeing to, the amount of times that things just get lost in communication a little bit or forgotten, importance is of given to, to different terms, I guess. People value yeah. things differently. Yeah, I agree, Essie. I mean, I, I, I answer this question often because I think it's actually better that don't ask the question as what is a contract, but I like to answer it as what is a contract not <laughs> because yes. it's really important from an employment perspective to, to realise that. And I think the first thing that I, would, uh, that, that I always say is it's a contract can exist in a non-written form. And any time there's an employment relationship, there is a contract, irrespective of whether it's been written or not. So you ask someone, you know, even to just do a simple job for you, there's offer, acceptance, consideration, intention to create legal relations, and that is a contract. So really the purposes of a written contract is exactly as you said, Essie, to define the terms of what you're agreeing to. And specifically when we start to talk about implied terms, express written terms will actually have the capacity to remove implied terms or alter the operation of implied terms. And that can be really important. But I get a lot of yeah. questions. Sometimes people will say, for instance, oh, they've been here three days and something's gone wrong, but they haven't signed their contract yet. It's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, there, there, a contract exists whether or not you in you know whether or not it, it's written and that's firstly the second thing i always say when it comes to contracts of employment is you can't control conduct through through a contract you, you're not actually exerting any authority you can't make people do things or make people behave in a certain way through a contract i think a contract's better envisaged as something which really creates the legal rights and obligations, as well as the possible remedies if it's not observed. But often you'll see clients wanting to include terms to, almost in a way to try and create the outcome. A contract is not going to manage your workforce for you, and it's not going to make people do things. It's just going to create legal rights and obligations. And the last point of what a contract is not is it's not something that's capable of displacing or changing the operation of legislative provisions that are there for the benefit of employees. So um, things such as the National Employment Standards, the modern awards, a contract is not capable of, of altering the operation of those things. Now, there is 
some extent where there's some interaction which we'll talk about in a little while but if you're intending for your contract to be for instance i don't want to pay someone four weeks and they'll leave anymore so i'm going to put in the contract they only get two contract is not that powerful so the other thing and the other reason why this is really timely and we have done some discussion about contracts both you know in our newsletter and i'm sure in the podcast before at some stage but really with the recent decisions and we've talked a lot about um decision in Rosado um, in the High Court and also the decision in personal contracting and JAMSEC. I think it's fair to say that the High Court have now established a situation in Australia where the actual written terms of a contract have primacy in a way they haven't really enjoyed possibly even the history of, of or the modern history of Australian employment law. Uh, the, 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 the recognition of the, the, the contract as being really the defining the written contract has been the defining features of, of 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 any type of employment engagement and i know it's not as simple as that ever more has been the case even that a, a contract of employment is really important and that's that's the case for award covered employees but even more the case for those that are award free and just covered by the national employment standards but we'll break it down a little bit more i thought a really <laughs> useful thing is to just go through a bit of a checklist and have a discussion because contracts don't need to be 20 pages long as well and particularly when we're talking about employees that are quite heavily governed by an industrial instrument such as enterprise agreement or award a lot of the terms and conditions are defined by that the contract doesn't need to be substantial but there are some critical terms so essie why don't you start us off with what's number one for you um, I've got notice of termination as number one. So yeah, it's a particularly important, <laughs> yeah, it's an important <laughs> express term because without it, an implied term would be applied by courts um, for employees who, and, and when, when situations where you have employees who are particularly senior or long-term, that notice can be, the reasonable notice can be deemed quite long. So it could be, you know, three, six, 12 months. Yeah. And then on the other end of it, the notice period can't be less than the minimum notice requirements under the Fair Work Act. Yeah. So that's under Section 117. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the award. If the award or the EA has got notice as well, then... then oh, of course, bit, yeah. But they will run together. So, for instance, if your contract has a four-week notice period and the employee is entitled to two weeks under the Fair Work Act, they, they happen concurrently. So, in a sense, they'll just get four weeks. They don't get four weeks plus two weeks. Um, so that's an important thing to understand. And yeah, in terms of implied yeah, terms, there has been, there's been some really big cases on that. One case, Susanna Marr and Expeditors, I think, where I think as a senior um, sort of CFO, someone that, that had gone through the organisation from a very junior accounts role to CFO, that the, the change was so significant that the original contract she signed was no longer applicable. So... It was a contract that was purely implied terms and the implied term of reasonable notice, I think, was like eight months in that case. So yeah, wow. very long-term senior employee, that can be quite considerable. Um, I think the other point that you make about, that's really important to make about a notice term is, again, it's not capable of actually controlling conduct. Courts will not order specific performance in relation to employment contracts. So, for instance, if you have an obligation to give three months notice, the employee doesn't give notice or just leaves immediately, a court is never going to compel a 
an employee to work somewhere where they don't want to work. They're not going to compel an employer to keep someone that they've terminated. But what the notice then does become is a, uh, a remedy. In effect, it's a, it's a financial remedy in those circumstances. But a couple of important things about notice too is it's important to have a couple of provisions in there. Firstly, notice can be a question of time. Okay, so you give someone, you know, four weeks notice means they need four weeks in time of notice that their, their employment is going to be terminated. Often employers would like to bring the employment to an end early and make a payment in lieu of notice. Now, that's a, that's a subclause that needs to be in the contract as well. In some cases, employers may want a period of guarding leave, so they actually make the, the they, they will require the employee to work the notice, but actually send them home and ask them not to um, not to work. Now, as I've said to you guys, that would be my dream for someone to do that to me, but it's, it's never mm. happened. Why is it called gardening leave? I, I thought just always imagined it's when you do your gardening. I, I thought so, yeah. Yeah. Just, I, just go and do your gardening. Like and just... I can guarantee you I wouldn't be doing gardening. I'd be doing Netflix and, and drinking beer. But... <laughs> <laughs> not, That's not... not what it's for, Brian. That's... <laughs> so... um. But yeah, that's important. And it's important if you do want to have that power, we'll talk about restraints in a minute. If you do want to have that power to send someone home on garden leave, then that needs to be an express term in the contract because um, otherwise there's a danger that it can interfere with an implied term to provide someone with work. So there's not an automatic right for gardening leave. It's a little bit contentious, but I think if that's something you want to do for, you know, for whatever reason, for the protection of, of competition or, or, or those things, that there's a number of reasons why gardening leave might be appropriate, make sure that's an express term. So your notice, I think, is number one. If you are only going to have one term in a contract... <laughs> It would be a pretty um, bad contract, but, yeah, but do, it, but do, would do notice. One. That's the one you can't live without. Um, next, Emily, what did you have? Uh, I think one term that is really important is to define the type of employment. Yeah. Right. So right. it actually clarifies lots of things from the employer and employee side. If you actually know if you're employed under casual employment, yeah. part-time, full-time, yeah. or fixed-term contracts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, that would be like one of the most important because then you can just refer to the Fair Work Act or your award and you have yeah. most of the entertainment. Yeah. It is also important because the different types of employees have different entertainments. So under yeah. the Fair Work Act and industrial instrument, for example, part-time, full-time employees are entitled to paid annual leave and paid personal carers leave. So entitled to payment for absence on public holidays or notice, as we just talked about, or redundancy payment, while, whereas casual employees are not. But in another end, casual employee will be entitled to casual lodging yeah. to cover that. For the fixed term contract, uh, you have to give the specific period of time or the particular task the employee has to do. Um, and similarly, full-time or part-time fixed term employees are generally entitled to same wages, penalties, or leave that permanent employees. 
And as you were just saying, Brian, while it's not always completely determinative what the parties have agreed is the type of employment, I've seen the high court decision of Rosato, Champsack, and personal contracting it is more important to yeah. put in writing what is actually the type of employment. Yeah, and so much, as you say, so much flows from that. But I'd even go back a step and say, like with most award-covered employees, you need to notify them in writing yes. what type of employment they're employed under and how else you're going to do that other than a, than a contract of employment or a letter of office. Amazing. If you don't have that, it's easy not to do that. And when it comes to casual, and that's obviously the subject matter of the decision in Rosado, and there's been some legislative changes as well, it's not just a case of saying that they're casual, but there is... Uh, it's important to actually make sure that the legal rights and obligations are consistent with those definitions as well. But yeah, absolutely, and, and everything flows from that. So the agreement of, of what type of employment, because if, you, if you're if you going to get into a, a dispute after the fact about whether someone's full-time, part-time or casual, I can guarantee you whatever way that falls out, the employer is not going to like it. No, not going to like the outcome. So it's something, yeah, something you've got to get right. Mine is is very uninteresting um, compared to compared to that. Um, I, I think a place of work is really important. A location it could be interesting. It just depends on what oh. the location is. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Luna Park. It's a little bit more fun. Absolutely. Go ahead. A court won't imply a location into a contract if it's not there, which which is an interesting little quirk. So you do need to set one. And look, we come across clients all the time that, for instance, have people that are on the move, but they might work from home or they might have an official head office location, but they're never at that. Um, at the very least, you need a default location to actually specify as a sort of an anchor point. You can't have a mobile contract. What you also need to do in terms of place of work is have some type of mobility clause as well. So you'd have, for instance, our standard form is, you know, you will be based at Chatswood and other locations that you may reasonably require to work at from time to time if you're overly prescriptive on the location and then your business has reason to move three streets over all of a sudden there might be a termination of a contract and you know potentially even a redundancy situation arising out of that so you need a you need a location but you also need to qualify that location with at least some degree of mobility and i think that's a pretty critical clause who was next I'll I'll go with uh, remuneration. That's a big <laughs> one too. How much yeah. money? That's the one that no. the employee will be looking at. No, that's right. So, like, just to state the obvious, remuneration clauses sets out what the salary or the wages are. Um, but then it can also include other entitlements. Um, you know, if they're entitled to use of a car or a phone or anything like that. Bonuses. Um, Commission schemes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's. You know, in that sense also, you know, forums like the Fair Work Commission are assessing um, whether an employee is a high earner or not. They'll look at remuneration package. Um, and if, you know, that includes, say, a car, um, then, you know, they'll that, that could be something that puts somebody over the high income threshold and, yeah. and that kind of a thing. So it's important to include those things and to assign monetary value to them if that's yeah. possible. Um, yeah, and Absolutely. to go off of what... Emily was yeah. saying about casual employment as well, just to include in there that somebody has the 
loading on top of their hourly base rate and to assign a, a, an actual dollar value yeah. um, when, when you have that clause in there, just for absolute clarity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'll go on to that with a little bit more when I talk about offset, which I'm going to do soon. But I think, Emily, what was your... Hours of work. Hours of work. So similarly, and I think it's a little bit linked with the type of employment. Yeah. So for um, so it's important to have the hours of work in your contract so that the employees know what they're expecting to do and what are the hours. For the full-time employees, uh, the national employment standard set out the maximum weekly hours, which has 38 hours per week unless additional hours are reasonable. So for this reason, often in a contract of employment, the clause relating to the hours of work will also allow for additional hours where they are reasonable with the employee agreeing they are reasonable given the nature of their position yeah. and their remuneration. And for part-time employees, the hours of work will be less than 38 hours and they are usually engaged on a regular pattern of hours. Uh, it's all, we can also note that if their employee is covered by an award, most of the time under the award, you're also required to give the employees in writing the numbers of hours work each day, the days of the week, uh, which the employee will work and start and finish in time each day. So for part-time employees, it's not only about telling them while well, you're working 25 hours per week, but also like when those hours are actually worked. Yeah. And casual employee then different. And under the new definition, which states that the offer of employment is made on the basis that the employer makes no firm advance commitment to continuing an indefinite work according to an agreed pattern of work for the person so that in that case the contract should not provide yeah, yeah. the work yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and there's lots there's lots in that clause as well and you've kind of hit on this as well in terms of what's reasonable over time for the purposes of Fair Work Act, I forget, I think it's section 60, is it 65, 60? Uh, yeah, 65. Um, and, 65. And, um, and I think uh, from that perspective as well, I think it's really important just purely from a contractual perspective, especially when you're talking about someone that's paid well in excess of whatever their minimum entitlement is, it, it needs to be clear whether or not there's an expectation that um, overtime will be worked and whether or not that's included in the salary. That needs to be set up really carefully in, in the contract in the sense that, is this 30, you know, is it is it $75,000 a year for 38 hours or is it $75,000 a year for 38 hours plus reasonable overtime? And I think from a contractual perspective, that needs to be set out there. But that kind of leads me to my next. I'm just going to say it's section 62. 62. I, I knew it was in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was like the mistake. But 62 maximum with the hours and reasonable <laughs> additional hours. Yeah, 65 is request 60. for flexibility. Yeah. yeah. 
I, sorry, we don't look at the act anymore, by the way, listeners. We just pick it up as we go along. So. Very comforting. Um, that, that one leads me to uh, a really important clause that ties together sort of remuneration and hours of work and a lot of these things, and that's offset. And I think this is probably, for me, up there with remuneration and notice of termination as being a really critical clause. Offset, set off, all up. There are a lot of nicknames, but what an offset clause does is it sets out exactly um, how, for instance, a salary or a wage can be used to apply against entitlement. So in specifically where, where someone's paid you know, an all-up wage, um, where they've given a, you know, a set amount, you know, whether that's $40 an hour or whether it's $75,000 a year or $50,000 a year or $1,500 a week, however that's expressed, if you want that money to be used to satisfy all of the entitlements that might arise, under a modern award, under the National Employment Standards, etc., then the clause needs to be in there specifying that. And I, I don't want to go into that too much more because it's quite nuanced in terms of what can be offset and what can't. And there is certainly a common law when it comes to award entitlements, there's a common law entitlement to offset, but I think that needs to be firmed up really carefully in a, in a carefully drafted offset clause. And that's not something, it's not a one-size-fits-all um, proposition always. In addition to that, and again, we won't talk about the specific casual changes, but there, there is some scope now um, in the Fair Work Act following the, the 2021 amendments in relation to casual employees, where if a casual employee is paid uh, a casual loading and then it's later determined by a court that they were full-time, um, there's capacity to offset that casual loading that was paid against any of the entitlements that may have arisen. And if that's not carefully drafted in the contract too, then that offset may not be available. So offset provisions are a really important one. What do you have next, Essie? I got entire agreement clauses. Crackerjack. We love entire agreement. What does that mean? That's not something that I think most listeners will necessarily understands so that might need some explanation yes so um an entire agreement clause it simply just states that the written contract is the entire agreement between the employer and the employee um, and the importance of that is that it actually ensures that the parties can't rely on statements or you know oral kind of promises made while they were negotiating terms of the contract if your employer told you you're getting a blue maserati but it's not in that remuneration clause you're probably not getting a blue maserati any concert before. <laughs> so but only if they have that entire entire agreement clause so that's correct like I, I haven't heard a lot of blue maseratis offered um as inducements to employment but certainly things like representations in an interview like i could see generally speaking people make it to partner within two years those types of what we call pre-contractual negotiations are excluded from a contract if there's an entire agreement clause because it's, it's, it's really saying this is the whole agreement, anything else that was said. Having said that, employers need to be a little bit careful because there's also um, the Australian consumer law provisions. Yes. Uh, and again, I'm just going to be reeling off sections without really knowing, I think, section 32 um, uh, is, is connected with misleading and 
um, deceptive conduct in relation to employment. So, for instance, saying to somebody, you'll get a blue Maserati, and then not giving it to them, and then relying upon the entire agreement clause. From a contractual perspective, you might be okay, but from a consumer law perspective, you almost certainly won't be. Because that's just. Yeah, your <laughs> example was a little bit more reasonable than mine. But, um... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, people often like to make um, indicative aspirational statements during the recruitment process, and it's very important that those aren't captured as contractual promises. But. Um, that's, uh, you know, and that's where the entire agreement clause is really important. Having said that, it's also really important to note that if you have, like a lot of employers might have a suite of different documents, like some employers might have a, have a sort of a deed relating to confidentiality or restraint provisions, or they might have social media policies or things that require signatures. I have seen a few examples of people having a, a, a bog standard very broad entire agreement clause in each of those and i think it's important to make sure you don't actually cut your nose off to spite your face with entire agreement clauses um if you do have multiple documents refer to them in specifically in the entire agreement clauses uh some of those things we might be going a little bit too deep here i think if, if listeners are doing suites of documents for in, employees um on their own and then they probably need to get some legal advice rather than listening to us on the podcast. But um, I think from that perspective, it's, it is it is important to be a little bit cautious with entire agreement clauses. Um, they need to be limited to the subject matter of the agreement itself. But they are, they are very important um, clauses, so that's a good one. And just to be a little bit annoying, section yeah. 31. 31. <laughs> You're here to keep us in check. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just Otherwise, just we're just lying. It's there in the thirties. Right. I'm within ten. That's that's. Right. Yeah. The new game. This is at this the is end the of new, it. How many points game. did Brian lose? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sorry, cruel. Yeah. Too cruel. What's next, Emily? You got one? Position description. Yeah. Cool. I think there is a little bit of a debate here. Sometimes yeah. people will say that do not include the position description. Yeah. We think that it's best practice to actually include a position description, yeah. at least um, in the shell. Yeah. Um, in that case, like the position description should provide the expectation of what is required from the employee and the responsibilities they are expected to fulfill in their role. So that will ensure that both parties actually understand what the duty of the position are. And so when the position description is included in the contract, um, which would advise also to include a clause that allows the employer to change the duties or ask for the employee to conduct other duties that could be reasonably asked for them so that you don't just limit yourself to the duties in the position description. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A bit, a bit what I said about location, you need that mobility and flexibility clause if you are going to be prescriptive. And I I think it's great to have um, position description. Thinking in, in case of underperformance. Yeah. To it have makes, that makes such a difference. Yeah. And, and we talked about it. I don't know if you were on it, Emily, but me and I remember um, SEU, me and Courtney talked about uh, performance management like maybe a year ago. And we were saying it, it starts with the PD, doesn't it? 
if you don't know what yeah. somebody's job is, how can you possibly say that they're not doing it? Um, and, and it's amazing how often you see the situation where, where that, they, that, that conversation actually hasn't happened. So I, I yeah. agree best practice, but two parts to that, I think having the position set out in the contract itself with the required mobility. So they may be asked to do reasonable duties in addition to the duties set out in that position description, schedule the position description. You're also, it's an important thing. We, we don't really want to talk about the principles of variation and termination and some of those things. But I think a really important clause in the contract is if there is a, a, a change in position, then the contract will still govern the terms and conditions of the employment, even if the position changes. So for instance, if you go from being a paralegal to a solicitor to a senior associate, then even though that position has clearly changed, the contract has been effectively varied by the agreement of the parties. It continues to apply. That case I spoke about, Susanna Marr and Expeditors, was a case where that, that, that clause didn't exist in that contract. So the movement up through the ranks really had the effect of terminating that contract and creating an entirely implied terms contract, which is a really disaster scenario for most employers to have a contract, you know, to basically you've got no written contract anymore. This is entirely implied terms. All benefit to the employee, no benefit to the employer in that situation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, position, that's a really important, important one. But both of those, a position clause and position description scheduled, but at the very least, the first one, if you don't want to do the second one. Sometimes I find you're not, you're not ready. You might be hiring somebody at, like on spec. You often see someone coming in like they're getting an admin person, like a senior admin person for the first time. They don't really know what help they need, but they know they need help. And part of the role is almost working out what they're going to do. Hmm. I've seen a job recently where someone hired someone for that, that they really didn't know what the job was or, or particularize a position description until perhaps after three months or six months. And, and that's acceptable too. But as I say, it, it's best practice if you possibly can to identify those things in the schedule. The last one is really a, a, is a little bit harder um, to quantify. This is not exactly a clause, but it's something that I think all employers need to turn their attention to. And that is, uh, what are the what are the clauses that you want to survive the termination of employment? And is there anything, are there any prohibitions you want to put in place? Um, in particular, often things like ownership of intellectual property or moral rights is a really important thing to address. If you've got anything specific that you want to identify as being confidential or proprietary information, this can be addressed. And, and then also, if you want to do something, if you would like to include a clause such as non-solicitation of clients for a period of time, non-compete in some cases for a limited period of time, all of those clauses, the contract is a really important part of those things. Now, we always recommend specific advice on that from a law, from an employment lawyer. Most clauses that prohibit or control someone from doing certain things in, in their trade are prima facie void which means the court will presume that they're unenforceable unless certain conditions are met. And those conditions include the, the person seeking to enforce it, the employer, demonstrating that those clauses are no more than reasonable for the protection of a legitimate interest. So if, if you're running a, a business that involves high levels of confidential information or if you've got a really competitive 
uh, framework where you, you're required to actually sit someone on the sideline for a little while because they've got really strong connections with your clients or if you just want to prevent, prevent them from soliciting the clients after they leave, those generally are things that need to be drafted by a lawyer very specific to those circumstances to have any chances of being enforceable. So that's it. Time for our game. Listening back, I think it's fair to say our game is having a sort of an existential crisis. We don't really know what's going on. We don't know the rules. We, we don't really know how we're scoring it. Emily, we don't know if we're tweeting or if we're saying the news. I'm not sure the rules are saying. Yeah. Well, you, well, you were even suggesting last time that we should change it so it's coming up with things that I would be least likely to tweet. So we seem to be playing with them. Oh, <laughs> yes. So really, it is the Wild West. It is. So it sort of occurred to me that that might have limited entertainment value in circumstances where we don't even know what we're doing. So I've decided to refine it a little bit and I've got new rules. Okay. And I've got music again because I love music. That's my favourite part. <laughs> To tweet or not to tweet? That's the question. Now I've decided what we're doing. So we're not tweeting the first thing. We're news readers reading the story and the rest of us are deciding whether or not we're going to tweet the content. That's more consistent with the music because we've got to have the music because the music's funny. The rules are three points. If somebody finds your content really tweetable, Two points if it's just tweetable, one point if they don't care, and zero if they wouldn't actually tweet it at all. But the twist is, if somebody else steals your idea, you have to give them three points, because otherwise, how could you say you were going to say it, and then it's not, you know, that'd be hypocritical. But you get a bonus two points if you steal someone's idea. So the whole idea is you get more points if that's somebody else's and you've got got an honor system here. Are there any points for tweeting something that Brian would absolutely never tweet? No. Oh, Oh. yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe. Come on. Okay, maybe. Just one. Maybe. Just give us one. Maybe there's two points bonus. If if I say I would absolutely never tweet that, then you actually get bonus points. Fair enough. Okay. okay. Love so it. Yeah. But I've realised one of the reasons that I think Essie probably wins is because she goes first. So Emily, me, Essie is the order. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Well, for my defense, I just want to say I was not aware of the world before. (laughs) (laughs) Negative one point, right. Keep going. Keep going. So my first news is a bit international. Yeah, because I'm I'm thinking I can have international news just because of my status. is about the new gig worker protections under the mm. Biden's administration in the US. 
Um, so last week, um, they've proposed legal change that would make more difficult for companies to treat gig economy workers as independent contractors. They announced the proposed amendment saying it will help employers and workers determine whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act in the U.S. So apparently the rules are not as strict as the so-called ABC test that is used uh, in the in California. Yes, yeah. That's why I was referring to it. But it still propose like better guidelines and it will make most of the gig economy workers employees instead of independent contractors under the rule. So just after the announcement, um, it provoked a severe fall in the share price of gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft. So I think that's a pretty yeah, good absolutely. one. Yeah, absolutely. So what did it do to the share price? Fall? It just fall. Yeah, yeah just after the end. In itself, isn't, isn't that just a sign that we all know yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. You know, let's yeah. give these people rights. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, yeah. no everything is fine. But the chairs have just <laughs> fallen. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think it's a little bit of the, the same issues and we have in Australia, you know, ways that they do not have access to the same rights and employees as independent contractors. Yeah. yeah. So, and I've got something to say on that, but I, I, I can't because I'm about to talk to you in a second. But um, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to give you okay. a very tweetable. Yeah. yeah, that's a yeah, yeah, three points. And you know, when the US, uh, no, no disrespect to the US, but when they're leading the way in employee rights, what do you think seg what do you give her oh yeah i agree three three points for sure very yeah. tweetable okay anything uh juicy gig economy related news gets my attention yeah <laughs> all right my turn Mine is an unfair dismissal. Government in-house lawyer in Victoria was dismissed around about this time, you know, towards the end of last year, relation to vaccine mandates. Now, the employee was dismissed for failure to follow a lawful and reasonable direction, which was to disclose his vaccination status to the employer. The commission decided that that was not, despite what the employee said, private information and it was a lawful and reasonable direction and the dismissal was not unfair. Now, it's kind of old news, vaccine mandates. I know we're all a little bit bored of that, but I, it's interesting for us because we were giving that advice at, at really from a year ago to a lot of people and we really didn't know how it was going to go until the cases came through the commission, so we were advising a little bit blind. But it's clear that that's the you know that's the commission's position. What was also interesting in that case because it, it was really reflective of a lot of advice we were giving too is that the employee was trying to say that he could work from home successfully and therefore avoid vaccination, and the employer wasn't happy with that, and the commission supported the employer in relation to the dismissal on that grounds too. So I thought that was quite an interesting one. Oh, that is interesting. 
Oh, now I'm not sure because I was. That is my tweet, and I can't believe you <sighs> took a case about vaccination and COVID-19. That, that was. Oh, yes. yes. See, that's the game like... theory for you. So you weren't expecting yeah. me to do that. But I was like, I was 100% sure that you were going to say to me, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> 100%. Well, you've got to give me yeah. a three, plus I get a bonus yeah. two. That's awesome. What do you think? Full of surprises. And I don't get anything. Finding something super to go. What's your score, Essie, on that one? Um, I, I was going to say it's tweetable. I said I, I am. I am curious that they um, about what you said that they even though the employees said that they'd work from home, but I'm assuming there must have been something in there that said you know in certain circumstances had to be available. Yeah, to come there was, in. There, and there was some yeah. degree of on-site requirement. It, it, um, yeah. I think the Safe Work Victoria was the employer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Safe Work yeah. Victoria. So I think it was also about because of their area of his job and like and his position and in any case like if he was asked to go to the office even for one day he would have been required to be vaccinated yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's like even if you're allowed to work from home there is some point like in the year all you have to go to yeah. the office and because you're working for WorkSafe victoria yeah. Where it is mandatory that everybody is vaccinated, yeah. and there was like I think there was like a specific direction yeah. like to be. But like, it was an employer yeah, yeah, direction, right. I think. It wasn't a it wasn't a government mandate, like which oh, I a fine line between the two when you're talking government agency. But it's not like the health workers yeah. were mandated to have it. It was an employer yeah. directive to do so, which is one of the things that we were never really sure about. Is in that. Where the fair work ombudsman talked about the tiers, I think the tier three, tier four, we, we were never 100% sure whether those directions were going to be lawful and reasonable. Um, so I think that's sort of interesting from that point, but it's old news, but it's, you know, makes me feel a bit better for the advice I was giving blind back in the day. And I'm sure a lot of employers that are listening that had that advice from us will, will feel that too. So. All right. Sending it to Essie Maravara. Thank you, Brian. Um, the Federal Circuit Court has dismissed um, an application brought by an ex-Bunnings employee. So he brought a general protections claim against Bunnings on the basis that his termination was adverse action. And Bunnings had actually terminated his employment because they found out that he had um, there had been sexual harassment findings made against him in previous employment from, I don't remember if it was 10 years ago or, or more, but the Bunnings employee had claimed that it that the sexual harassment finding constituted a social origin and that it was discrimination to dismiss him for his social origin but the federal circuit court said that social origin isn't uh it's it's not unlawful to discriminate for social origin in victoria and therefore it was not adverse action under under that yeah. three fifty one two, which which says that if conduct is not unlawful in in accordance with the with the various discrimination legislation, then it's not. But also, they were not prepared to accept that having a sexual harassment finding against you has anything to do with social social origin. 
Yeah. Well, that's the next question I was going to ask. That seems to be quite a bizarre suggestion. So being a harasser is, is a... Is a uh, I think it was um, the fact origin. that there had been court proceedings and a finding against him and a huge fine. Um, and that that was what he was claiming, oh, that it's kind of similar I to, I guess, if you had a criminal record or... Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure, but, you know, didn't fly anyway. But... Yeah, got you. No, well, the social origin one just hasn't had much of a workout yet. But correct, please, someone send me an email or a message if, if I'm wrong about this, but I don't think there's really been a, a definitive Section mm. 351 case on social origin. Yes. But that's great. That's a really good one. And Bunnings, you don't see Bunnings no. much. Um, I, for, for such a large employer, you don't no, see them. No, but it seems like a, a decent reason to terminate someone if you find something like that out. I mean, it was uh, it was a sizable um, penalty that he yeah. got too. So, <laughs> I think that's a three. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, a tweetable, just yeah, yeah. just because yeah, I really I didn't, didn't, yeah. uh, didn't pick it. So I say she's she's gonna be a hard marker now that. Now that she understands the rules, I'm, I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I understand the rules. You keep changing them every week. I do week. keep changing it, but this is it now. I'm liking it now. And we're sending it back to Emily Riera in the newsroom. Emily Riera here <laughs> for an dismissal case. <laughs> So, uh, this is my option case because Brian Trapan and I actually kind of wanted to do both of them because my case is about a firefighter who was reinstated after a refusal to provide proof of his vaccination. But I will invite you to read the case because, like, the facts are pretty specific. So I think the one you talk about um, would be like the majority of the cases, but it's just like on the particular circumstances, this firefighter was reinstated. And actually the commissioner found in that case that the employer had a valid reason for the dismissal but the dismissal was nevertheless harsh and just and unreasonable. And it's just that actually also in this case, the firefighter was vaccinated. It just didn't reveal that to his employer while he was on leave oh. and has yeah. all the status of his vaccination. And he sent an email saying that he has not failed, not refused to receive an approved COVID-19 vaccination. This is an assumption from the employer. And the employer made the decision to terminate him. Now that's, yeah. yeah. Well, in that case, they should have inquired more and maybe direct him when he was back at work to give is vaccination status so that's why i'm saying with the case it's not a different position than the one we talked about before it's just completely different circumstances that are really yeah uh, and i'd say that whenever you're talking about unfair dismissal full stop 
Because, because I'm yeah, dismissal of the harsh, unjust, unreasonable, and the three eighty seven factors are very fact specific, and which is why, you know, really unfair dismissal. The, tr the tribunal is exercising it as a tribunal of fact. They're deciding as a question of fact. In that case, is it harsh, unjust, unreasonable? There's always procedural yeah. fairness aspects. There's always, you know, just general reasonableness aspects, and absolutely, there's aspects of of harshness. So prima facie, those two cases we've spoken about went opposite directions, but clearly there's yeah. specific factual reasons as to why they did. Well, same with personnel and JAMSEC. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and lots of lots of our area, it's, it's really, it comes down to the specific facts often, which is why each dismissal when you're approaching this as an employer is different as well. But why it's it's so important sometimes to get legal advice if you're not sure of any aspect of what you're doing with a dismissal because it is so fact specific and they will consider those. In fact, the commission are, are mandated to consider those factors in every single case. Yeah, that's good. I'd tweet that. I, yeah, I'll, I'm putting that in very tweetable. For oh, me. very? I'm, I was just ordinary. But you're going to give a very? No, I think it's great because you know she'll retweet your tweet and then she'll post that yes. and that yeah. will. I know great discourse yeah. <laughs> so were you going to have a double you were planning oh no that was your reserve of course that was yeah. my reserve yes yeah cool you didn't want to encourage our listeners to refuse to give vaccination <laughs> as certificates <laughs> <laughs> all right me next the Fairway commission full bench finalized its uh four yearly review of the modern award which took yeah. eight years and they've hit back in quite a bold statement um, at people being critical in relation to award complexity. And it seems to be a little bit of a catch cry at the moment in some employer organisations that award compliance is too hard, it's too complex, and it's the complexity that's causing non-compliance issues. Now, the statement from the Fair Work Commission is quite interesting. It's worth a read. They addressed a number of things. Firstly, feedback in relation to the length of the awards, secondly in relation to the complexity and complexity in two two ways, the complexity of the drafting and then the complexity of the actual terms and the conditions themselves. You know, in relation to length, they were really saying that length, a lot of the four-yearly review process has been about explanatory notes, examples, breaking down clauses so that they could be you know, fairly carefully understood, and that has inevitably led to length. In terms of complexity of, of drafting, you know, that they go together. I think they're less complex now because they're longer. And, and the final thing, the statement of the full bench said, presided by President Ross, was that the complexity of entitlements is something that has been complained of often, and all the stakeholders, like any award process, were invited to make submissions. Each one was found on their merit, and, and on the whole, you know, the complexity is warranted because you can't often resolve the complexity without resolving it one way or the other in favour of the employers and the employees. And so the Commission have gone through their process and done that. The statement also notes that prior to the Rudd government introducing the, the forward with fairness changes, there was about 3,000 instruments and that's now been reduced to 121 modern awards with general application and, and really wanted to note the, the Fair Work Commission were trying to say to industry, leave us alone, we're doing the best we can, <laughs> which I thought was yeah. quite interesting. My view is that it was too complex 
before 2009 and people got away with a lot more. I think in the modern mm -hmm. era, employers are not getting away with award breaches because they're less complex than they've ever been. But it's an, it's an interesting idea. I do appreciate that they're saying that it's, you know, that they're trying and it's improved and I'm sure it has improved. But, you know, I th kind of think you're the Fair Work Commission, you're sitting on kind of, you should take a bit of a, I don't know, you're, you're high, like you're higher up than this. Like you don't have to defend yourself. You don't yeah. have to defend yourself. Yeah. And also you're, you're a body that's, you should be criticized. Like people hold you to account. Yeah. We want you to do better and they're continuing to do better. And I'm not saying they're not, yeah. but I think, I think some people find them complicated. Your average person doesn't know how to read them. And uh, some of it, because they've been changed at different times, the language is different. It creates, you know, issues with interpretation. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a valid criticism and, uh, you know, keep at it. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, the, the other thing too is that, that they are the product of arbitration. They're, they're the product of two sides, industry and unions generally arguing and fighting over entitlements. And, yes. and that's what inherently makes them complex. I think the only way, like, I think we could all sit down, anyone anyone that's done a little bit of employment law could sit down and rewrite the awards and make them easy to understand, mm. but that would involve substantively changing them. And I think that's kind yeah. of part of the message President Ross is making there, you know, when, when, when they talk about complexity of entitlements, they've been bargained in a lot of cases, offered by consent to the commission as, as consent orders, or they've been product of, of arbitration where the commission's actually come up with something where you try and find a balance between two competing sides. It's one of the unique things about Australian employment law. It's one of the things that makes it fundamentally fair. I know a lot of people don't think it is fundamentally fair, but I think that's, you know, that, that's the interesting thing. But it's not just a case of let's make it easier. And I think there was a veiled criticism of some of the employers, but it's often the employer groups that are complaining about complexity, but also the employer groups that are fighting tooth and nail over every issue before the commission too. So, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the message I was getting from the statement, but I thought it was quite a good one. I will have to read the statement. Yeah. I'll give it a, I'll give it a tweetable. Tweetable. I give it really tweetable. Really tweetable. Really good. Yeah, and because I feel like sometimes I've been reading those awards and thinking, what the yeah. hell? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Especially the perspective of a French lawyer coming to Australia and saying, what is going on here? <laughs> so, yeah, it's also good to be reminded that um, while they are complex, like they need to clarify some of the provisions that made them longer. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. And I have. And look, the awards were in regularly enough to pick up the changes, and there's several of those. The changes, I think, have been positive on that level. But there's no, there's yeah. no question that they're longer. Yeah. Because if you've got something that is inherently complex and you're trying to make it less complex to read, it's always going to be longer. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, length is fine so long as... It's coherent. I was going to tweet about the fact that Tony Burke has uh, published um, in kind of vague terms what the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill um, will entail. So I thought that was interesting. They're wanting to ban pay secrecy clauses. Yeah, that's interesting. Unless, um, 
you know, only only instances where employees actually want to talk or share about their play, pay. And gender uh, equality seems to be a um, central objective. Uh, and as part of that, they're also introducing um, two Fair Work Commission expert panels, one on pay equity and then the other one on care and community sector because it's it's female heavy. Looking forward to hearing, uh, you know, the details. I was, I was thinking about that one, so... Uh... I'm bound to give you a very tweetable, I think, very tweetable. (laughs) I think the pay secrecy is a great one. I agree. I don't know how you can genuinely say you're going to target equal pay for the same job from a gender perspective if you have organisations where people are not allowed to talk about how much they earn. Definitely. I think that's definitely the case. I know it's the case in the legal profession. And I think the more controversial one has been um, increasing the paid parental leave weeks. Yeah. There's some, I think the AFR had an article out today about research on whether that will work. So that that's interesting. Yeah. Well, data from around the world shows that where you treat absence from work for, for having kids as being an investment in workforce participation rather than considering it as like a social welfare payment, gender equality scores are generally better now. I yeah. Mean, Scandinavian countries like Sweden in particular, all over it. are all over that. Absolutely. And I know that's a bit different, you know, because the, the, the economies are different, you know, resources are different, philosophically they're different. But I, I do know Sweden's parental leave scheme is really, really strong and very beneficial. And and they're one of the, the countries that scores best in terms of gender equality on, on most of the metrics. And it makes a lot of sense because if you make it, easy to drop out of the workforce and if you make it hard to maintain participation in the workforce obviously that's going to have long-lasting effects and to be honest it's going to cost the economy a lot more than parental leave if you've got if you've got someone that's out of the workforce for a longer period of time and i'm not even just talking about fairness between people i'm just talking about it you know purely from an economic objective point of view that um maintaining workforce participation is going to be better but 26 weeks I'm a supporter of that, paid parental leave going up. Um, I yeah. think it's positive for a lot of different things. I'm interested to see the bill, obviously. I think it's... Sure, I'm going to say, yeah, no, it's very tweetable. I'm going to give you three. Emily, what do you think, score-wise? Yeah, tweetable. Just tweetable? Yes. Oh, you're hard. You I really... was doing better when I was the first to go. Does that dice, It's is it loaded? Is there a weight? I think she does <laughs> I don't think she likes the fact that you won so much. I think it's just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so because she is doing it fair today, I'm taking my chances that this is not winning. We're not today. competitive. Who's competitive? <laughs> All right. Okay, final scores. Essie, 10 yeah. points. Excellent. Emily, 11. Betty, 12. So the bonus points Ooh. that I got from stealing yours thank got you. me over the line. Congratulations. So thank you very much, my first ever win. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Next episode, we're going to go on. We're going to talk beyond just the written terms of contract. We're going to talk a little bit more about implied terms. We're going to talk about incorporation. Incorporation also involves talk of workplace policies and, and, on the, and the status of workplace policies in relation to contract. And so that's, again, quite a nuanced one. We will have a written publication going out about that. Otherwise, thanks, guys, again. 
sing out listeners if you need anything at all on the stuff we've been talking about always happy to have a chat or a message or an email or, or whatever it is otherwise look forward to, to seeing you next time